and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Tony Scotty. For more than 45 years, Tony has catered to the training needs of corporations and public service agencies. He's trained governments, corporations, law enforcement agencies, and military organizations to avoid vehicle violence. For five decades, his training programs have been conducted in over 45 countries. Students from 74 countries have attended his programs on five continents. In 2003, Tony became the executive vice president of Tony Scotty's Vehicle Dynamics Institute. And in 2012, Tony created the International Association of Security Drivers, ISDA. Tony is the editor of the Executive Protection and Secure Transportation magazine, and the list goes on and on. And I must say that anybody who's been in the security business as long as I have has heard of Tony Scotty, and it's a true pleasure to welcome Tony to the OnTech Protective Intelligence podcast. Tony, how are you? I'm doing okay. Let's hope the same for you. Tony, you've been in this business a long time. What are some of the technology changes that you've seen in the driver security business in the time you've been doing this? The latest, of course, is uh, electronic stability control, uh, ADAS, which is the all the uh, lane changing, uh, automatic emergency braking. That has created a much different atmosphere and different uh, workplace for the driver. And cars are getting better. And it's a, a lot easier to pick an executive vehicle today than it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Tony, is there any specific vehicle that you like better for executive protection work to drive executives around? Well, Fred, it, it, I can give you a good answer on that. It's actually not what I think. Every two years, ISDA does a survey, and we ask all our members what they think is the best executive vehicle and also what, have, what vehicles do they use. Now, we've been doing this for about eight years, and every year it's the same two cars. For the SUV, it's always been the Suburban. For the sedan, it's always been the Mercedes-Benz, the uh, S-Classes. Uh, the Suburban, by far, is the car of choice for the executive community. On a personal level, I would agree with the survey. I think the Suburban has everything that you need in an executive vehicle, and the Mercedes-Benz is uh, the same. Tony, you've defined the science of driving, and I know we were chatting before the podcast about a recent attack that took place in Mexico where a senior police official was attacked. Why don't you talk us through how you go about dissecting that kind of attack and what you think went wrong? The first, that has to, what has to be said is that a, a vehicle moving uh, through space, driving down a road, is a mathematical 
problem. It's a mathematical analysis. It's a science. And so there are certain equations that define what the vehicle is going to do. So the first thing we did is look at some videos. There's a number of them out there that have a timeline. And so from the videos, we can determine what happened when. And that allows us to start to use things like the time distance equation, something called sight distance. The other source of our information comes from our ISDA members. We get pictures, we get uh, videos of the uh, of the event. Now, what we do is we create a timeline of what happened. Then from that, we go to Google Maps and we use Street View. We find the location, do Street View. From Street View, we can literally drive the principal's car into the ambush and we can time it. Now, from some of the pictures that we have, I can see where the principal's vehicle was stopped. From that, I can get dimensions, again, using Google Maps. And so I can compute where the first time it was possible for the driver of the principal's vehicle to see the car blocking the intersection. And then from that, we can use equations like rate of deacceleration, reaction time. So I can come up with a pretty accurate location of where did the drivers see this. All that to say with this particular incident, they absolutely had no chance. It was well-planned, well-organized. I'm not too sure if it was well-executed. So from the time that they saw the incident to the time the firing started was less than three to four seconds. Wow. And uh, they they planned the incident on a road that curved. So as the principal's driver is coming up to the intersection, his line of sight was limited. So the first time he could have seen the incident, he was at least 200, maybe 300 feet away. And if you look at, you make some assumptions and then work the equation so the, to find if the assumptions are correct. And the assumption we made that they were driving in the, in the area of 35 to 40 miles an hour. If you put all that together in what we call the vehicle ambush algorithm, it will tell you pretty accurately. They had very little time, very little time to react. So that is that part. Then there's the car. Now, from our timing, they shot the car for two to two and a half minutes. Stationary? The vehicle was stationary? Vehicle was stationary, and they shot at it for two to two and a half minutes. The car performed much better than anybody should expect. Now, here's where it gets cloudy. Rounds obviously penetrated the vehicle because the principal was hit. Now, there are reports that the two executive protection team guys both died. They were both shot and killed. Now, some reports, and I have to say that this is not confirmed. Some of the reports are saying that they covered the principal's body with their body. Wow. Now, if that is the case, which it seems to be, then 
rounds did penetrate the vehicle or else they wouldn't have been hit. So rounds did eventually enter the vehicle, but you can't fault the armored car manufacturer. I mean, the objective of an armored vehicle is to take the initial hit and then get out of the kill zone. Right. So the way they had set this up, there was no getting out of the kill zone. That is not the fault of the drivers. That is not the fault of the vehicle. That was just a well-executed, well-designed ambush. And it doesn't appear that they were running a five-minute car or had any counter-surveillance teams deployed. That's an excellent point, Fred, because here's the other metric. (laughs) The other metric is they sat at the ambush, they being the attackers, sat at the ambush site for two to two and a half hours. I got to repeat that. They sat at the ambush site for two to two and a half hours. A simple advance team going ahead of the of the principal surely would have spotted that. And you know, Tony, you and I have seen this our entire professional career. It's these kinds of failure points. You know, you go to work every day in the protection business. You never think it's going to happen on that given day. It's kind of like Hinkley popping out and shooting the president or any other kind of vehicular move. And I can't tell you the times I've been in motorcades and you're thinking about everything that could go wrong, but you never really think that it's going to happen. Yes. But isn't that the job of the executive protection team? No matter what the scenario, the job is to think that something's going to happen. Sure. Absolutely. Now, when you look at that kind of case and and studying these kinds of vehicle attacks, when you think about that driver that sees he is approaching that kill zone, what could he have done differently, Tony, based on your experience in this business? There are a couple of things that, you know, again, before I say them, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yes. Again, they picked the perfect ambush site. He couldn't go to the right because there are buildings there. He could have gone to the left. He would have had to mow down some trees. So a educated guess would be that he had to go to the left. And that would have meant he would have driven over the curb, knocked down some trees, but he would have made it. He would have been able to get out of the kill zone or off the X and uh, drive his way out of that. Tony, I know from going to the various crash and bang schools, which were a hell of a lot of fun, you know, I I must say, you know, that attack recognition is, is drilled into you. And then the ability to actually use that vehicle as a weapon and and to get yourself out of harm's way is in the training environment was was great lessons to you know to be learned. But as you look at today's executive protection teams that are traveling around, maybe it's a one person team with a with a CEO, and maybe they have uh, if they're lucky they have a driver. If not, they're using a contract driver. What are some of the points of advice that you would give to those executive protection teams as it pertains to driving? The first thing is, is, and again, this may sound that I'm prejudiced. It sounds kind of foolish, but make sure he can drive. Yeah, good point. Yeah, driving is a measurable skill. Has he been measured to have the ability to use the vehicle's capability? That's the definition of driving. A good driver can use uh, 80% of the vehicle. The average driver can only use 40, 45% of the vehicle. So can this driver 
when the bell rings and he has to earn his paycheck, can he use 80% of the vehicle? In my days, again, I don't want to sound like a magchit, but in my days, that was maybe a little difficult to do. Again, that's where the science of driving comes in. That is easily measurable with some mathematics. But in today's times, you can plug a device known as a G-meter into the cigarette lighter, and you'll find out if he can if he can drive. What's that called, Tony? It's called a G-meter. You can get them with an app. You can get them so they plug into your OBD2 port. They're inexpensive. And in my opinion, if someone goes to a driver training program and they're not measuring the amount of energy they're applying to a car in various scenarios, they should ask for your money back. <laughs> now, you talk about the 80% uh, or, or most drivers, and I would assume that the average uh, the average person on the highway is not not even using what percentage of their skills then are? Uh, this, is a, this comes from a study done, conducted by the Society of Automotive Engineers. They found that when, an emer- when they're confronted with an emergency, the average driver only uses 40% of the vehicle. And at that point, there is a lot more of the vehicle left. The engineers will always try to be diplomatic. So what they'll say is at 40 and 45%, the average driver gets anxiety. Okay, now what I say is that at 40 and 45%, they get scared. The fear comes. And we see that when I was teaching, we see that all the time. And there's a scientific reason for that. At the 45% mark on most automobiles, the car does something it called it is called it goes non-linear. If you look at how a car is driven, when you turn the steering wheel, you expect the car to go in a certain place. Right. But when a car goes non-linear, and that happens when you're putting about 40 to 45 percent of the energy on the center of gravity of the car that the car can take, at that point the car goes non-linear which means small changes in the movement of the steering wheel creates big movements in the, in the movement of the car. Small increases in speed mean big increase in the amount of energy exerted on the car. So small increases in steering and small increases in applying the gas will make the car uh, go sideways. A car going sideways or starting to go into oversteer or understeer it's not a problem. It can easily be controlled. But that's what training's all about. You can take someone who's at 45% in less than an hour, they're at 80 and 85. And, and teach them how to avoid that or at least get out of trouble. Correct. And, and, and how that's done is recognizing before the car goes nonlinear, that it's going to go nonlinear. You feel the steering wheel get light. I'm sure it's happened to everyone who's listening, meaning it doesn't require as much effort with your hands to move it. That's the car telling you you're going into nonlinear, and if you keep this up, bad things are going to happen. And so it's all putting a person into a scenario where that is going to happen. The instructor knows at what speed it's going to happen. He knows where it's going to happen, and they coach you through it. That is really not uh, difficult to do in the past. But now with electronic stability control, 
the car recognizes via a computer that the car is going non-linear and it takes control of the car. And that's now creating some problems. For drivers on executive protection teams. Yes. Yeah, much like uh, airbags. Correct. Much like ABS. And the other and the other thing, Fred, that, and I think this is becoming a, a problem, especially if the team rents the principal's vehicle and the driver is getting in an unfamiliar vehicle. So he gets into the vehicle and I'm sure everyone can can recognize this. And he's, he's driving with the principal and he gets a signal from the car, which is telling him that there's a car on his side or you're moving over into the lane. Well, if that's the first time the driver has felt that, then he may not know what to do. So we strongly suggest that if you are going to get into a car that's a rental car, you learn all the ADAS systems in the car. And that, and that is a, a problem with people supplying executive vehicles and supplying contract security drivers. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai/center. That's ontech.ai/center. What is your advice for protection teams that are listening to this regarding trying to get executives that? might not want a driver. They very much want to have the autonomy to drive themselves to work or to drop the kids off at school. And perhaps they have a protection team that's trailing them or a counter surveillance bubble that's placed around them. What would be your advice to that protection team on whether or not that executive needs to go to driver training? Again, that's not uh, not that easy to answer. But let me, so let me start with if if it's corporate, then it is a security driver is dictated either by the KNR policy or by the IRS. Uh, one of those two has made up the mind for the executive, so they will have to have a driver. Now, the other issue that we point out, uh, in fact, Joe Terra from VDI has done a great paper on it, and you have to prove your worth. It's like anything else. Prove that you are of value to the executive. And he wrote a paper called The Return on Investment for Security Driver. And what he suggests in the paper is that you look at what the executive salary is. How much time does the executive spend in a car? And the numbers, when you work out the equations that Joe presents, the numbers are mind-boggling. You save productivity. By having an executive driver, the executive can work in the back and that trip from his home to the office is productive. And the dollar value 
that's assigned to that, that comes with that is mind boggling how much money they save. Yeah, no doubt. But I, I see your point. And that, that's a very interesting paper. We'll, we'll have to get that and post it on the Center for Protective Intelligence blog so everybody can read that. I'm sure that that can be helpful for protection teams trying to articulate why a, a driver makes sense for a busy executive. Tony, when you look at over the course of your career at studying driver training, what are some of the basics that the average person that might be listening to this podcast can learn by thinking more about driving. I mean, the world is so distracting today, especially with all the iPhones and Android devices and people just not paying attention when they're driving and so forth. What would be your counsel or suggestions for individuals to just make them safer when they're either transporting themselves to work or their family to school? I think I'm correct in saying this, that distracted driving, uh, as far as deaths are concerned, has overtaken uh, alcohol. So distracted driving is, is the number one issue. We also did a paper on distracted driving that I'd be happy to send along. But here's what I want everyone to envision. We have this device in our car. It's called a speedometer. And that speedometer reads in miles per hour, which is meaningless when it comes to executive protection and driving safely. We need to change that to feet per second. So if you're driving 40 miles an hour, you travel in one second, you travel 60 feet. If you're traveling 60 miles an hour, in one second, you travel 90 feet. So if you're driving down the road and you do something as simple as look down and pick up your iPhone, and that took you three seconds, one, two, three. If you were going 40 miles an hour, you moved 180 feet basically with your eyes closed. And so it can't be said enough. When you're in a car, keep your eyes pointed straight. We do something called in the blink of an eye. If you're traveling 40 miles an hour, as I said, it's 60 feet a second. In a tenth of a second, you go six feet. In two tenths of a second, you travel 12 feet. And the reason why we call it the blink of an eye, if you blink your eye, that's 0.2 seconds. If you blink your eye, you travel 12 feet in your car. So there is nothing magic about it. All you need to do is focus your attention on what's in front of you. Do not look away. It literally is deadly. Yeah, that's very, very good advice. I, I certainly wish more people would uh, heed that. Tony, I would be remiss without uh, asking you, as you look towards the future and we think about uh, driverless cars, autonomous vehicles, do you see a day where those are incorporated and in moving executives from point A to point B? Well, I could give a real complicated answer, but I'll give you the short one. No. <laughs> I, Fred, I simply don't get it. I don't understand press issue about driving a fully autonomous vehicles. To drive a fully autonomous vehicle, we would have to change our entire infrastructure. And that is not going to happen definitely in my lifetime. Uh, no offense, Fred, probably not in yours. But will it happen someday? 
I think so. But to answer the question about autonomous vehicles and security drivers, we just went through a study on the concept of not autonomous vehicles, just electronic stability control. Autonomous vehicles and electronic stability controls, when they take over control of the car, security isn't the issue. The algorithm written isn't for security. It's for safety. And there are times, many times, and look at this last ambush, where safety isn't the issue. The driver has to take over control from the algorithm and do something that the car says don't do, like drive over a curb and maybe knock down a few small trees. Yeah, good point. So when autonomous vehicles come, and I don't see them coming from a while, they're going to make decisions based on safety. Well. If there's a car pulled out in front of you and they're going to block you and they're going to do bad things to you, you don't want the car to stop. No. So those are the issues that the security driver faces that others don't face. So what would work for the average driver may not work for an above average driver whose objective is security, not safety. Well, that's very well said, and I think that's a good place to close. I truly want to thank you, Tony Scotty, for joining us today. I enjoyed it. Now, if folks want to read more of your writings, uh, where should they go? Tell us a little bit more about your International Association of Security Drivers. Well, they can go to our website. If they have specific issues, that's what ISDA is for. Email me. It's Tony Scotty at securitydriver.com. I mean, that's what we're here for. We're here to give knowledge. We have some of the best in the profession at doing it. Give me that email for you one more time. Tony Scotty, T-O-N-Y-S-C-O-T-T-I at securitydriver, all one word, dot com. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Tony, for being with us today on the OnTick Protective Intelligence Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Fred. This episode was brought to you by the OnTick Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontick.ai slash center. Again, that's ontick.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.